Good morning, and thank you very much for joining us uh, today. Uh, this panel discussion, uh, as you know, will be dealing with uh, impact and the role of uh, technology on the continent. Uh, my name is Benga Oyebode, and I'm of counsel at the firm of Alukwan Oyebode in Lagos. My co-moderator will be Karim Anjawala uh, of Anjawala and Kana ALN Kenya, and uh, I am ALN Nigeria. Uh, the purpose of the panel is to review developments on the continent, take a look at the challenges that we're seeing, uh, and essentially focus on what are the, the uh, uh, solutions that we can uh, uh, drive, what are the things that we can change, uh, in a world of impact, in a world of uh, increasing regulation, in a world of, uh, uh, of changes, um, we'll be focusing on all these issues. Uh, and we have a panel uh, this morning of three speakers. And I'm going to hand over to uh, Karim to do some brief introductions and of, of himself and also the, the panelists uh, for today. Thank you very much, uh, Benga. Um, this is a panel spread across Cape Town, Nairobi, London, uh, and Lagos. Um, so truly Pan-African in nature. Welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Karima Jawala. I'm the senior partner with ALN Kenya, uh, based in Nairobi. Absolutely delighted to have uh, with us today, uh, Zachary George, Dario uh, Giulani, and Folorin. Uh, just very, uh, all, all the information was obviously in the packs that's been sent out, but just by way of very quick introduction, Zach is the MP of Launch uh, Africa Ventures. Uh, I, I, I don't think I could count the number of early stage investments they've made, but I would, I would, I would imagine it's, uh, you know, in the hundreds. Uh, and obviously a very well-known fa face in uh, uh, the venture space across the continent. Um, his, the startups that, that, that he's invested in include Flutterwave, Codabank, Mpost, Recomed. Uh, Dario is the founder and director of uh, Brita Bridges, um, business intelligence platform, uh, serving a, a really important need actually um, in, in a continent that's very diverse and oftentimes lacks the data that we all need to make informed decisions. Um, and Follerin uh, leads Google's startup um, ecosystem in Africa, uh, really focused on empowering startups um, across the continent uh, to work with, you know, the best of Google's tools uh, wherever they do, wherever they do business. Um, I'll just set a little bit of context before I uh, push back to to Benga to to kick off the Q and A. But obviously, over the last uh, particularly five to seven years, we've seen a, a massive change in the tech startup uh, ecosystem in Africa. Uh, led, of course, I think by Nigeria and South Africa, but also Egypt and Kenya. And increasingly uh, with great companies and startups right across the continent. Um, <clears throat> the amount of money has increased uh, significantly. 
data suggests, for example, that despite everything, the money coming into the tech scene in, in Africa in 2022 will exceed uh, by 30 or 40% the amount of in, in 2021. Equally, there are big gaps that remain, right? Regulatory gaps, skills gaps, um, people gaps, uh, and sometimes overly, overtly strict or incoherent regulation. At the same time, Af Africa, unlike other parts of the world, is coming together. The AFC FTA heralds a, a, you know, a, a big step, positive change potentially in uh, the dynamic movement of goods and services across an increasingly more integrated continent. And obviously technology is going to be at the heart of driving this to create a single digital market. Um, at ALN, we believe deeply in integration. Our model is based on integration. We've been in 15 markets and growing uh, for decades now. Uh, we, we think of Africa as a single market, as one region. Uh, and so for us, what tech can deliver uh, for the continent has unmeasurable potential. What we hope to achieve, as you know, this is a three-day session, a couple of hours each day, um, uh, and then continues tomorrow, Wednesday, and Thursday. What we hope to achieve uh, is three things, really, to spark an interest in collaborative continent-wide engagements aimed at unlocking the potential of Africa's tech ecosystem. Uh, two, to understand some of the practical challenges facing tech startups in different sectors and different jurisdictions, and to explore, finally, workarounds and solutions to some of the challenges that we identify. So we all want to leave after these three days better informed and more knowledgeable. Um, uh, and just to summarize very quickly, after this panel today, we have one focused on the regulatory environment, uh, uh, particularly looking at fintech. Tomorrow, we have a panel on fintech, on insurtech, on tech in general, and on health tech. And then on uh, Thursday, uh, we have two panels on uh, uh, fundraising, early stage and growth stage fundraising, uh, including IPOs, uh, including in US markets. So that's the plan. Uh, Benga, allow me to pass it back to you to, to kick off the Q&A. Uh, and, and, and to kick off, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about the pulse of tech on the continent. Um, you know, giant strides that have been made, um, essentially uh, around education, healthcare, uh, particularly around fintech. Um, but I think it's also important to acknowledge some of the um, the, the challenges that we face on, on the continent, whether they be challenges around uh, uh, infrastructure, whether they be challenges around regulatory behavior, or whether they are challenges around just the information gap or, or funding gap. And I, I would just like our, our panelists uh, to speak to uh, what are the real issues that they see on the ground? Uh, how do they think we can um, uh, uh, leapfrog some of these issues? As important as the continent is, and as uh, uh, the growth of uh, uh, technology on the continent continues, we, we, we do have to admit that these uh, challenges uh, exist. Uh, and I'm just wondering, uh, and I'll, I'll go to Zach first and, and say, look, you know, what do you think the, um, uh, how do you think we should dimension these challenges and how do we uh, uh, deal with them?
sorry, was that was that sorry? I just I just lost connection for a second. Um, was that was that directed at me specifically? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, for you to start off, Zach, really just to say that in 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 the middle of all the growth that we see on the continent. Uh, and, and particularly because um, this is a continent that has still has so much to do. Uh, uh, technology is obviously going to help us along the way, but we then continue to see significant gaps, whether it's yeah. infrastructure or funding, uh, or even if it's just inconsistent regulatory behavior on, on the continent. Yeah. And, and, and the question really is, how do we uh, dimension some of these things and, and how do we leapfrog them? Yeah, no, I mean there are lots of uh, that's yeah, it's a, it's a great question to start off with. I think I think people need to realize that, and I, and Dario and I have been in several panels together where we've we've hashed this out. I mean, venture capital in Africa is still a, an absolute minuscule percentage of the total amount of funding um, globally. It's less than one percent. It's about zero point seven percent. So while we we celebrate small victories of us getting to almost touch wood $5 billion of VC on the African continent this year, it still pales in comparison to the almost 600 billion that we'll see this year globally. Um, the second thing is uh, the majority of problems that venture capital can solve in Africa are things that are need to have solutions, not nice to have solutions. So the startups that we've backed as Launch Africa, the startups that our colleagues have backed and other VC funds are solving problems that have a real problem solution fit or a product market fit. And they serve populations, um, on the, they serve populations in things like financial inclusion, infrastructure, as you mentioned earlier, food and water security, um, logistics and mobility, in, in a lot of economies, people don't, under, um, don't understand the significance of, of what percentage of people's monthly income gets spent in things outside of just rent. So mobility and logistics, access to basic commerce, groceries, healthcare, et cetera. So when you use technology to solve these problems, it requires a seismic shift in thinking, a mindset. And that takes sometimes almost a generation to, to see. So although Africa still accounts for a very small percentage of uh, venture capital globally, what we're seeing is the shift in capital allocations away from traditionally project finance, which is mostly impact um, and, and foundation driven. So you've seen massive World Bank, IMF, IFC loans to the African continent to project finance, and that's slowly being moved away into less asset-heavy projects, so less capex-heavy projects. So what, what you're seeing is the majority of VC funding in Africa still happened, but it didn't happen through VCs. So you're seeing less debt, less donations, because people people have been, have been you know, are coming to grips with the fact that having a commercially viable, profit-driven enterprise that cre creates more sustainable jobs on the African continent than pure donor funding or foundation-driven funding, and to a large extent, um, DFI-driven loans. So that oh, trend will really only get better. And with the more success stories that you have of not just unicorn founders, I'm not a big fan of harping on unicorns, the more success stories you hear of technology founders that have been able to create sustainable jobs within their own startups and the broader supply chain of clients, suppliers, and partners, 
the more you'll see capital shift away from traditional asset financing into venture. And that's what I'm extremely bullish on. If you just look at all the jobs created in Africa by the top 50 tech startups, they're exponentially higher than what a similar sized organization would have created, if that makes sense. It, yeah, th thank you, Zach, for that. I'm wondering if Fulani could just do a quick follow-up uh, on, on, on that question. Yeah, th thanks, Binka, and thanks, Zach. Hi, everyone. I think what I, what I usually do when I, I'm asked this question is I bucket them into four things because the problem is also where the solution is. So we've conducted research over the years and seen that the four biggest challenges that startups face uh, across the continent are the first thing being uh, access to finance, access to additional finance, second thing being access to markets, third being favorable policy, and the fourth thing being hiring, firing, or hiring and talent. Right, so we'll kick off with the first one, uh, the finance. I think Zach has covered it all in terms of the funding gap that there is. I, earlier this year, we saw that I grew to learn that the UK raised 40 billion in funding last year um, compared to the four or five billion we raised last year. Um, if you look at the growth that the UK, for example, has had, we are 10 years behind them in terms of funding numbers. But in terms of the number of startups that we're producing, it's far more than they have or will ever have. Um, just, I mean, by sheer number of the size of the continent, right? That's, so the biggest thing is just that funding gap. Um, again, geographically and historically, where Africa is very far away from where the pools of funding are. So that's the biggest challenge we're seeing in the market now. So the solution is obviously you can say, okay, throw more funding in the market, but it's not as straightforward as that. I'm sure we we'll probably cover reasons for that later on. The second, being, second thing is access to markets. On one hand, yes, there's the AFCT agreements um, coming to fruition and taking shape. And yes, people talk about the size of the population, but also the size of the youth population. But what they don't factor in is that the tech landscape requires certain criteria to be met in terms of internet connectivity, in terms of smartphone access, and a bit more. And without the, when you start to filter down with these sorts of um, criteria, you drastically reduce the size of the population um, that you probably, uh, that's your target audience that, or that can use your products, right? With that, so on one hand, yes, we can build, but the problem is you cannot lead for infrastructural and infrastructural challenges, right? The third thing being the favorable policy. Again, yes, uh, access to, uh, sorry, AFCT agreements, but we're also seeing, for example, in Kenya, the Kenya Startup Bill, in Nigeria, the Nigeria Startup Act, and we're seeing more countries, more governments um, be a little more proactive uh, in supporting the startup ecosystem, right? While that is good, it's still not enough, right? So I think part of the solution there is, again, the challenge is that the government still seem to be looking for how to eat from that tech ecosystem because they see tech as the new oil. So it's vibrant, it's the new coal. So they're wondering how they can also, I guess, get a bite out of that instead of seeing how they can further elevate it, which will then further increase the socioeconomic prosperity of these different countries. And the last thing is hiring and talent, right? Uh, for two years now, we've conducted research to see the to size of the developer population in Africa. We've seen that there's about 700,000 developers uh, across the African continent. When you Think about the number of businesses that there are in Africa. It comes to about one developer to 60 businesses. 
right? If we're saying we're trying to go into a technology age, a digital age, that those numbers don't make any sense. Um, and we're also seeing the whole, we are seeing conversations around, oh, I mean, there's a word called jackpot or um, the mass migration and the brain drain. But the thing there is that, again, migration has always been a thing. Um, it's historically, it's always been a thing. And people will always move where there's demand, right? Where there's, where there's demand for, for, for them. But if anything, what we should be looking at is the other side of it, which is uh, more developer training and digital skills and literacy training um, to enable more people to get into that talent pool. Fine, thank you very much. And, and I just have a direct jump in uh, quickly uh, before we hand on to, to Karim. Dario, can you hear me? Thank you. Yeah, I can hear you. Are you do you okay. want me to comment on, on yeah, what's been yes. said or are you asking me a specific question? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, want, I wanted you to comment. Uh, if, uh, look, I am. I, I couldn't agree more uh, with what Fola and, 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 uh, and Zach has said. You know, there, we need to put things in, in, in comparison. We need to put in perspective the, the, not only the VC and tech space is a tiny proportion of the economy, but it's it's a tiny in, in proportion with the rest of the world. But it's also a tiny percentage of GDP within the economy. And even though it holds a lot of potential, there's so much groundwork that needs to be done at the level of infrastructure, at the level of training, at the level of talent and capital, and also something that we're realizing for a more that we cannot keep uh, keep relying on international volatile and high risk capital because as soon as there's a tiny shock not committed capital ends up being more of a liability than and so creating creating structures that allow to have both um, sort of local capital that is more resilient and is dedicated and is there when times get hard uh, in addition to international capital is very key because the data show that like 60-70% of all the funding that has been raised over the last 15 years using brighter data exactly been raised thanks to capital coming from overseas. And this creates uh, a number of problems. Of course, when companies scale funding, sorry, when companies scale, they attract capital from the outside of the continent because obviously it's, it's a natural reaction of international investors to scaling companies and opportunities, but there needs to be a balance. This said, uh, there's a lot of work that I am very positive um, when it's about when I see it, it, it has been done talent at the level of um, sort of on the ground knowledge that has been developed. Uh, a lot of collaboration that are happening between um, sort of corporates, government, um, NGOs that maybe previously were focused on on sort of five year projects, and now they're also they're focused on supporting companies in the long term and private enterprise. Um, but yeah. Apology for the for the sound. I did. I decided to stay in this cafe from my previous meeting because I was afraid I would get stuck in the Waiyaki way <laughs> to go to to go to the office. So, uh, apology for that. I'm trying to keep like my hands on my ears to avoid echo. But please feel free to ask me any other questions. Okay. Thank you, Dario. Karim, over to you. Thanks, Benga. No worries, Dario. I guess you're you're demonstrating some of the infrastructure challenges that uh, <laughs> Follerin talked about uh, talked about earlier. But but I think um, Follerin has actually set up a, a perfect uh, matrix for us to think through 
um, the pulse of tech in Africa. You know, the, the four, the four, uh, the four pillars around finance, markets, policy, and and talent. So I'm going to kind of continue to interrogate along those lines. Um, you know, if if I if I may. And my first question really is around finance. And you know, obviously, following you've demonstrated the big differences between a single country in Europe, the UK, and the whole continent in terms of the amount of funding uh, raised. And I think we all know that. My question is, um, what impacts in 2023 and 2024 uh, do you see happening in relation to funding into Africa from the global challenges facing the tech world, you know the the downswing in prices, a number of the of of the of the scandals that are, have been evolving uh, uh, in recent weeks and days. Um, have you begun as Google to think through what that means for the funding landscape in Africa? Uh, and then I'd like Zach and Dario to also jump in with their views after following has expressed his. Thanks, Karin. I laugh at this question when people ask me. Uh, I'd explain why. So I think maybe I break it down. I like to do bucket things. Uh, so in terms of the, let me address the scandals first. I think that's the easiest one to address. A lot of so following just one thing to say before you go in. The, we also have government um, amongst the the attendees, right? Okay. So people from various regulators. So I just wanted to bear that in mind because. Uh, it, it's good for them to also get your perspective on this, and therefore a number of and therefore a, diff a number of different countries as well. Yeah. Got it. Th thanks. Thanks for, for that context, Karim. Uh, yeah. So on the scandals, there's my my biggest thing with that is that conversation is that nothing that we're seeing here is peculiar to the African continent, right? It's uh, certain things are a function of individual, and certain things are seen in certain in in different toxic industries, toxic verticals, especially high growth uh, industries, right? So those can be addressed at a different level. But what I, I I'm gonna tie that into what the next thing I say is that investment is not, is not benevolence, right? People invest because they see potential rewards. They're trying to, it's a high risk, high reward society as well. They're trying to five, 10, 50, 100 X, 1000 X their money, right? So regardless of scandals, money will still be pumped into where there's potential, there's potential reward. Um, that was the shortest part of that. In terms of prediction for, I guess, 2023 and onward, I think over the past couple of months, we've seen a lot of correction. We've seen correction um, for valuations. We've seen, uh, even if we kicked off very bullish this year in terms of funding, we've seen a, quite, a, quite a slowdown um, with funding as well. And reasons for that are, again, Africa does not exist in its own, in a silo. It exists in the context of the world. And we're seeing uh, economic headwinds and globally. So that is also taking a toll. But what we're also seeing with investments, and maybe Zach will speak a little more on this, is that we see what, we, what usually happens is rather than the bigger bets, people would rather spread their bets. So it's like smaller ticket sizes, smaller checks, but for more people. Because then it's still a game of, I want to 50, 100x my money. But now I also know that more startups are going to die, pardon me. So. If the if the ones that succeed can make up for the ones that aren't doing so well, then that still works. That still works in my favor. Um, in terms of our own perspective and how we are navigating, is also part of why I'm not in, the, in Lagos, Nigeria at the moment. Is because I also understand that a lot of the work that we do as Google 
is signaling for the ecosystem. And I'll speak about two things. The, as one thing, actually, the Google for Startups Black Founders Fund in Africa, right, where we committed 50 to $100,000 of non-equity funding to about 50 startups last year and 60 startups this year. Right. With that, what we've seen is other heavy hitters, other ecosystem players also make commitments to put money, invest in the, in the ecosystem. That was first of all, that was actually a proof of concept for their own due diligence or for their own observations of the market. But second is for them to also uh, realize that we are seeing the potential and we are signaling for others to also see that potential. And now they are deciding to put money in. So it's going to be very in interesting for us to regress from that. So again, going forward, what we're looking at is seeing how we can either remain flat, I mean, as a result of the economic headwinds or even double down, further double down on our investment into the landscape. Uh, we see that, again, I like to say that a dollar here, a hundred dollar, a dollar in Africa is like a hundred dollars. Sorry, a dollar in the West is like a hundred dollars in Africa, right? I guess for reasons whether it's the FX differences or, or the, the, in, in, the, the lack of, the absence of FX and many other reasons. But for that, uh, every dollar counts. And the more money we get into the ecosystem, um, the more, uh, the faster we're able to um, to scale as an ecosystem, not just the, not just Nigeria where I am or where I should be anyway. Um, so yeah, I, I'm pretty. I, I think people have a pessimistic view, but I'm still super optimistic again because it's still a high rate, high reward society. Also, that where there's a plethora of challenges, um, opportunity also abounds. So we're going to it's still day zero. We're going to see many more solutions being made. We're going to see many more startups being created, and we're going to see much more investments. What we see is that similar to interest rates, we see slowdowns in the West. Uh, we're also going to, what we're going to see is that money move uh, uh, to the global South. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Paul. It's super interesting. I'm going to pick up um, on one of your comments and direct it towards Dario. Uh, you know, your comment that, you know, money isn't, funding isn't benevolent, right? Uh, I think that's sort of a really important and, uh, in, in, in a sense, obvious point. Uh, but, and, and forgive me for being slightly rude, but obviously we know that a man and his, a young man, uh, I think below 30 in his pajamas, could raise a um, billion dollars whilst playing a video game online, talking to global funders. At least that's what the FT reports, right? Um, and, and we know that it's very hard <laughs> to raise money in Africa, right? Uh, let alone a billion dollars uh, for a founder under 30. Uh, Dario, part of what you, I mean, the key part of what you do is to fill information gaps, right? And I guess to give people a realistic picture about what the opportunities are and how to, how to, how to think about that. Have you seen, tell us about, I mean, you've been in business since 2018, right? Um, uh, tell us how, from the Bitter Bridges perspective, you've seen the, the raising finance landscape change. And when will we be in a position to have a young African in his pajamas uh, raise a billion, but hopefully do better with it uh, uh, than a more recent example? Thanks, Karim. Well, I just wanted to say I'm Italian and the, the, richest, the richest gamer and streamer in Italy is this TikToker from Senegal. Uh, who is actually the most viewed TikToker in the world, and he's African, oh, uh, African Italian. Yeah. So there are people who can raise a bunch of money from Africa in pajama. And I actually wanted to say, 
that the gaming, the, we focus on tech, but there, there are some industries from gaming to design, the fashion in Africa that are unbelievable and are unbelievable over the last few years. And we tend to we tend to kind of forget them because we're focusing on our tech bubble. But like there are other industries that are getting money and young young fashion stylists, young gamers that are and young game producers that are and now. Um I I actually had a talk recently about uh, my relative optimism on what's happening in Africa. Yes, we might be seeing a slowdown with in the last couple of years being incredibly inflated in terms of funding. But it's something that has been steadily happening over the last 10 years and it's been the growth of all methods. So the number of companies being founded, the number of companies, or the number of, of deals being signed, the number of investors uh, entering the space, the number of international investors entering the space, the average ticket size aligning more standards. Uh, the fact that there are more types of um, check uh, checks that are being written. So I know that Zach has been very vocal about the use of uh, safe and and uh, and uh, convertible notes. Uh, a lot of organizations that have started tinkering with Africa funding with grants, including Google, are now doing equity. And this is the case with many funds, like from Vigor to Catalyst Fund, early stage funds. Um, and this is a, and these are all trends that have been very positive. I do think there we're under will be seeing a significant adjustment. But this is due to the fact that as as much as now we're considering this as a slowdown, we were not as critical when the spike happened in 2020 and 2019 of funding. And there's there's this chart, and I'll, I'll probably be, be publishing it soon, um, that looks at the last 10, 5, 10 years of funding. And if you actually draw a straight line, you can see how the actual weird years have been 2020 and 2021 as opposed to 2022 because 2022 follows exactly the straight line uh, of, of, of steady growth of the, of the um so i remain positive because of the diversity and and the, the growth in numbers in general i like to usually um gauge the ecosystem by number of deals and activities as opposed to the total funding because as i said at the beginning like five companies are getting all the funding like the funding and and there is, there's always going to be someone who's very successful in fundraising and raising and then skew the ecosystem. But the average ticket size is far lower. But there are there are people like Zach and there are more uh, fellow fellow invest, early stage investors that are entering the space. They understand the space and they are they're making bets and they're training entrepreneurs. And and finally, something that is very important to also uh, understand is the fact that. The new the wave of capitalized startups in the last two, three, four years has also led many, um, many kind of mid term mid uh, managers and, and executives to become sort of capitalized enough to start writing angel checks. And this has a massive trickle down effect on the space. And this we're talking about local founders, local, local, local team members, not just uh, American white founders. Or American white employees that are entering themselves into the fund. So I remain positive because of these long term Obviously, Zach is very bullish. I know about the, the demographic potential of, of, of the of the continent. I'm, I'm very familiar with his life. Um, but uh, so I remain positive. Every time I was just telling yesterday, my the cab driver I was like, in the last five years that we come to Nairobi, it keeps getting better. 
every year I come to, every year I come to, and it keeps getting better. And this is the case for many other African cities that I'm continuing to grow up uh, in, uh, across um, the continent. So I think these are my two cents. I remain positive. I think shocks are there and shocks have always been there for the market. And just like because the African startup ecosystem is young, we shouldn't think that shocks are eternal. Um, we need to adjust it back and kind of re-strategize. But for people who are here for the long term, I don't think anyone is, is being too worried. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much, Dario. Um, just, just to remind everyone, we have one question in the chat already. Please keep keep your questions coming, and Benga and I will will get to them. Uh, we're also trying to cover as much ground as possible. Uh, so, uh, Zach, if I could ask you for your final comments on the on the sort of access to money bit, and then I'll pass it on to Benga, who wants to move on to social impact. Yeah, I mean, just access to money, uh, I think I covered this in one of my earlier points, but the reality is one of the biggest gaping holes in the access to capital bit is, so we've seen plenty of money from DFIs into the VC space. I was on a, on a panel at the Africa FinTech Summit a couple of weeks ago in Cape Town, and Although the numbers aren't official, if you would estimate the amount of money that DFIs invest directly or indirectly into tech startups in Africa, it's probably between 80 and 90%. So a lot of the DFIs, I mean, I'm assuming folks in the audience know who the major DFIs are, but it's pretty much European and American um, developmental finance institutions that are funded by taxpayers that started off um, as, as a way to sort of give development aid and then eventually transitioned into being direct investments and then as LPs and funds. So if you look at the likes of the CDCs now, BII, FMO, Proporco, uh, IFC, AFDB, all the three-letter acronyms that you can think of, SWED Fund, North Fund, et cetera, directly or indirectly, it accounts for almost 80 to 90% of capital going into venture funders. Now, if you look at that stat in the US, in North America or Europe, that number is, what is it, single digits? Not even, I would call it NA, not applicable. So, you know, and 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 you think, okay, what strategic value are DFIs adding to, to founders? There is some value, of course there is. But ultimately, if you look at this, the, the top performing VC funds in the US, the top performing VC funds in Western Europe and in Asia, it's really strategic LPs, individuals, family offices with connections to industry that can add a lot more value than just capital. A big missing part in Africa is that. So you don't have a lot of strategic retail LPs and we're also missing CVCs, corporate VCs, right? Um, Africa has a massive, massive opportunity for corporates. So it's specifically insurances, insurance companies, retailers, banks, telcos that just aren't doing enough from a CVC perspective. Right. And I have no qualms in, in calling them out, not by name, but you know, you know who you are. Um, there's just not enough that goes into it. Um, we have a couple of CVCs on our cap table and ironically, they're not Africa-based corporate. So we have some very prominent US and European corporates that have um, off balance sheet CVCs. Very important point here for the, for, for the folks that understand structuring and law. When you invest as a corporate, 
off your own balance sheet or on balance sheet, it's very hard to make risk-adjusted um, investment decisions because you're you're essentially using your capital as as leverage. So for those of you that understand, you know, capital adequacy ratios. I mean, to invest a dollar into a technology startup for a minority stake, you need to show four dollars in equity reserves, which is a nightmare just from an accounting perspective for large corporates, right? So CVCs need to be done off balance sheet where the corporate becomes an LP in the fund through an SPV. You don't have that level of sophistication in a lot of African corporates, sadly. Uh, the ones that do, do exceptionally well, but it's too little. So I would argue that the biggest gap in funding from a capital perspective into C, Series A, Series B, Series C stage African tech startups is from CBCs. Um, that can single-handedly solve the entire challenge that we have in Africa. Um, but there just isn't enough appetite, enough understanding more than anything else. Uh, and there's a huge part that, you know, our industrial families in Africa need to play. So all the money sitting, I mean, you guys are sitting in Kenya. What are the industrial families in Kenya investing outside of property? Not much, you know. But there I guess, I guess that... I'll challenge Dario, right? Because uh, that's where Dario's business can help provide the data and the information. I think I think yeah. your point about CVCs is great, uh, and I think your your point about having off balance sheet structures is also very interesting. So um, for the companies on the line, it's a real shout out to start thinking differently. And Dario, yeah. I guess um, you need to empower these companies and these families, as you say, right, uh, to move away from bricks and mortar. And so on and so forth, and into into um, into this. And the more success stories that 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 you can demonstrate, I guess the the easier it is to um to make that case. So with that, I'll yeah. I'll pass on to to back to Benga. Uh, only just pointing out, Benga, there are questions also in the Q and A. So I leave it to you as to how you want to deal with uh, deal with those as well. Karim, I think we'll just take a couple more questions and then we'll do the Q&As uh, as we get closer to the end. Okay, great. Um, but but the, the, the question is, um, uh, on my side, is around uh, uh, impact. Um, so impact is important. Um, I tend to think that, um, and, and um, you know, uh, in, in, my, in my spare time, uh, you know, I spend a, a good amount of um, time looking at investments, looking at, uh, um, potential, uh, you know, startups that are uh, growing around the continent. And one of the things that I know, whether it's healthcare, uh, education, agriculture, or even fintech, is that um, uh, impact is is particularly important around us. You know, and and that may just be because of the infrastructure infrastructure gaps that we see. And and so my question uh, to the panel is, you know, how important is is impact? Um, um, you know, uh, um, what, 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 when you're looking at, uh, at a startup, and, um, what do you look at uh, in terms of, um, you, know, uh, you know, it's easy to say that sometimes fintech is all about financial inclusion, uh, particularly when we're dealing in, uh, for instance, cash in, cash out uh, uh, startups in, in Nigeria, um, where it's people at the bottom of the pyramid who don't have access to bank accounts or brick and mortar banks that are uh, the target of some of these startups. And so I was just wondering if you guys could speak to uh, how important 
social impact is um, when you, um, you're looking at an opportunity. Uh, and I'll go to Folarian first on this one. Thanks, Thanks for the question, Mingya. Um, we 100% look at uh, impacts, so social impacts, um, when we're assessing and selecting startups for our programs. And again, alignments to the SDGs. But it's actually one of the easier things to look out for in the, in the landscape that we have due to the plethora of challenges that we have. So we almost, unless it's maybe a betting company or I mean a certain kind of company, right, they're very likely to solve for challenges that are pressing um, to I guess the community, the society, right? And there's a quote that I like, there's a quote that I like to, to talk about. I'm going to go away from FinTech a bit. And it goes like this. Of all the inventions, the alphabet and the printing accepted, those inventions which abridge distance have done the most for civilization of a species. Um, what that essentially means is that for every time we're able to save, for every, in every moment where we're able to save people time, right, that time is converted to further technological advancement. Right. And what that looks like in the tech landscape for us, or has looked like for us, is that, again, for us, we assess, okay, number of jobs created, number of direct jobs created, because that's, that's what is um, trackable, right? But what you see with these things is that for every time you, uh, a person is granted access to fi finance or funding or to further market, what happens is besides the direct jobs that they're creating, what, so there's a trickle-on effect to the number of indirect jobs for, to the number of indirect jobs being created by the people that they are hiring, to the amount of wealth being further going into the rural areas, right? to the amount of resources, well, to the amount of technology going into those areas as well, to the amount of sensitization and education as well that's going into those areas. It's really, that, these are one of some of the things that are very hard to track and measure in terms of social impact. But those, they're happening as well is my biggest thing. Um, we look at things like in terms of metrics, um, I think like any other, we look at things like, okay, maybe besides the jobs created, we look at things like the revenue generated as well and the follow-on funding raised. And the reasons for that are, so for the follow-on funding especially, again, especially seeing how Zach even mentioned, is that most of the funding comes from outside, Zach and Dari mentioned, most of the funding comes from outside of Africa. So what happens is that is money that we've never had, we had never had access to, they would never have had access to. And that, even if it seems like it's a lump sum, when it's broken down into salaries, it's, it's broken down into, it's passed on into other facets of life. And these things also aid, I guess, socioeconomic improvement and prosperity, right? And on the other hand, for the revenue as well, what happens is when you sh sort of slightly shift the needle and you pay people higher than uh, the current, the current uh, cost of living, what happens is these things, they are shifted into I guess, closer to the middle class, if anything, or the lower middle class, or the middle, middle, upper middle. And what happens there is they're also able to further employ, further empower other people. Um, I think generally for impact, because, again, because of the number of challenges we have, right, where it's going to be very hard for us to not solve for them, right? We see, for example, you see, I think, so Karim mentioned how someone raised uh, funding in his pajamas, playing, playing video games or whatever. And we see that, I give examples, right? And fund, for fundraising, I, I've been on at different demo days in other countries out of Africa where people are pitching for, and don't get me wrong, these are problems that are, that are, they're also important to solve, but they are particular to their own mature market. So I see things like plant moms, solving for plant moms, right? Or pet moms and pet parents. We see things solving for those things. 
or like and those again those are challenges that they they need solving for and there's a need right that's why they're, they're solving for it but at the same time when you look when you bring it back home and look at oh we're trying to uh in, improve financial inclusion for x number of people that is a big the social impact is is invaluable is immeasurable right regardless of the, the vertical whether it's health tech taking more um social workers to um the rural areas giving people access this so again I think it's one of the easiest things for us to solve for. I think that's my short slash long answer to this. We don't need to think too much. I think we'll still be very deliberate and intentional, don't get me wrong. But if you look at just the, the, macro, the microeconomics of this, it's always going to be socially impactful um, to not, again, not just Nigeria, but most of the African continent. Just more funding, more jobs being created. Thank you for lying. I was wondering if Dario or, or Zach want to um, jump in on that. Uh, uh, I can jump in very quickly, probably to reiterate what was said. Sorry, Zach. I, I think there was a little lagging. Um, but I'll be very quick. Uh, as Valerian was saying, like, I like to look at things in, in perspective. We are we, we working because we've been um, significant impact of, of like did all these operations activity initiative and at the broader level in society. So there's there's definitely a bigger conversation to be had uh, on the role of uh, tech and on the role of I always call it the PR effect of tech and VC in Africa, right? Because at the very least, you know, brighter. Brighter was founded with the idea to create to, to promote a brighter narrative around this this market, right? And if we look at you know the the what at the very least this what startups and VCs are doing in Africa is turning Africa into an appealing investing uh, destination. So there's a narrative shift that is happening. And I've been very I've been very much uh, pushing this idea. That's, that's what you're seeing now. So people will be like, oh, wow, lots of entrepreneurship, a lot of cool ideas, a lot of ways like innovation and innovative and technology to uh, solve problems. One of the probably most common sentences you'll ever hear in, in this space is, we like African entrepreneurs because they are, really, they are uh, solving real problems versus other, other entrepreneurs. And which I don't necessarily think is true. You you can find you can find some random companies from the, on the continent as well. This is exactly. Darry, we are struggling to hear you now. We are struggling to hear you. I could see that your faces were slowing down. I'll pass it over to to Zach. Okay, Zach. <laughs> Yeah, listen, I don't want to spend too much time on this topic because we've got a few questions in the chat, but I just wanted to say very clearly on the impact thing. I've had this question for the last 10 years living in, in Africa. I think let's just call a spade a spade and uh, make sure that I, I, I strongly believe that if you can create commercial traction out of the ventures that you build, then mm -hmm. impact, um, and I say this out repeatedly, either intentional or unintentional is significantly higher than any specific impact of adventure 
Uh, not that I'm trying to tout our own fund here, but our fund has created more than a thousand sustainable jobs in the last two years across our ventures. I can't think of a single foundation or a nonprofit that has created that many jobs in such a short period of time. So I'll rest my case there. So Zach, I think the only, my only, I, I would just come back on one point there, and it was the point you made earlier about when the blend of funding is so DFI focused, right? The lens inevitably is intentional around um, uh, impact, right? Uh, and obviously, if if you succeed in your ambition of changing the blend of funding uh, uh, away from or, or to reduce the importance of DFIs, then obviously you get a, you get a different uh, you get a different outcome on on that question. So I just thought I'd mention that you know yep. that 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 point. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Fair enough. Thanks. Yep. Karen, do you want to take uh, uh, another round of questions and the, the questions? Sure. So, so, so what we'll do, uh, I, 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 there are questions in the chat. We'll leave those for now. We'll come, we'll come to them. I, I want to move on to the, the whole kind of um, policy, uh, policy part, right? Uh, following you mentioned the Startup Bill and the Startup Act in Nigeria and, and so on. I know that a number of our clients uh, struggle with inconsistent regulation, with um, uh, how can I put it? Well, if we can't license you because we don't know what you're doing, we'll make up a license. Uh, and until we make up the license, you can't do what you want to do, right? Uh, kind of approach uh, in a number of markets and so on. Um, but on the other hand, we know there are lots of tons of examples. And then you've got obviously some founders who say, well, look, we, we'll wing it, right? We, we'll, uh, we'll make the market and then see what the regulators have to say. And we know that sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't work. Um, and there, you know, there are examples on both sides of that equation. I don't want to use any names, but we know there are, there are examples on both of those sort of sides of the ledger. Um, I, just, I just wonder... Uh, and, and obviously, Google has amazing convening power, right? Uh, that's the one thing that you, you know, more than anything, you have that convening power, right? I'm I just wondering what efforts you're making in that space around uh, helping regulators and governments think about regulation appropriate for uh, the, the, the tech landscape in, uh, in Africa. Thanks, Karin. It's really impossible to build and outside of the lens of policy as a tech startup, as a startup, as a business in general, it's really impossible to build as outside of that lens. Uh, during just as at the start of the pandemic, we saw a policy um, in Lagos State in Nigeria shut down three businesses. One of those businesses had just raised millions in funding. Right. So again, I think funding plays a critical role. And in terms of what we do, what, what you don't get to hear on the news is how we, uh, we bring together roundtables to hear about what our startups are facing and how we can support. What you don't hear about is, is that uh, we also supported, we contributed to the Nigeria Startup Act, now an act. We contributed to the formation and development of that act. Right? And we do this in, in the not just only the countries that we're currently present in, in Africa, which are Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa, and Ghana, but also in other P1 markets, markets that we're, we're also looking to enter. 
because again, a rising tide lifts all boats. So even if yes, we're trying to support the startups that are there right now, we know that it would also favor us when we decide to go into those markets. So what mm -hmm. we're doing is actively, we put aside budgets and actively and proactively engage with um, policymakers in terms of uh, just sharing what it, on, on two fronts. On one hand, guiding, advising, consulting on things like policy formation or policy removal, correct policy correction on one hand, but also creating visibility around the impact of the work and the relevance of the work that is being done in the startup and developer ecosystem. What that looks like is uh, frequent sit downs with these policymakers. What that looks like is newsletters, written letters, in fact, um, to these, these policymakers as well, and, and much more. It's ultimately certain things are driven uh, by economic decision or I guess a personal decision. So there's only so much you can do, but I guess as a company, again, not just in Africa, globally, we'll continue to I guess advocates for startups and developers. But the last part I'd say there is that there's only so much that we can do, right? And there's, for my team, for example, I lead the startup ecosystem. Um, so, so part of my responsibility is also conveying impact numbers, impact metrics, and the relevance of the startup ecosystems um, to the policymakers, right? But there's only so much I can do. There's only so much I can know as, as, a one, as one person or as my team. So what I usually do is try and call on startups. So I'm very accessible to reach out to me, let me know what is happening, right? So that, and let me know what you need support with, right? If you've got a whiff of something, let us know so that we can also further support you. Or we can point you to people that will support you. Or point people that can actually also, that are also inf inf influential to also engage with the policymakers to, for action, for change to be made, right? Um, yeah. That's a really great shout out, uh, Folorin, and I'm sure there are about, hundred people online who you're going to get emails from <laughs> momentarily. So <laughs> uh, I don't know whether uh, uh, Zach and Dario have anything to quickly add, but quite quickly on on what following just said. No, I'm good. good. For my okay. So look, we have uh, we have four. Um, I'm just conscious of time. We have uh, four um, uh, questions and comments in the chat. Uh, the first is from Serena Davis. I'll just read it out. Uh, on the continent, break-even requirements one year seem to be very different than Europe and USA three years. How does this affect estimating the true potential of the continent, especially in creating comparative KPI? Um, uh, Zach, do you want to take a stab at that, that comment and question? Yeah, I don't know where the commenter on break even or where that assumption comes from. I mean, if you're if you're a real venture investor, you you understand very accurately that you know no one's expecting you to be cash flow positive or break even. If you have true venture style growth metrics, um, you know, don't put a gun to my head and say you need to be break even by year two or year four, year five. I think it's it's stage appropriate. Uh, I would say as a, as a general rule of thumb, once you are preparing for a series B, B for Bravo raise, people expect you to be as close as possible to break even. That being said, break evens mean different thing in different industries. If you're an insure tech, you definitely don't have as much leeway to getting to break even as a digital bank, for example. Right, digital banks typically break even significantly later. I mean, look at companies like 
Monzo and Nubank, and in 26, they took years to break even. Some of them are still not break even. But it's but it's again, it's it's and this is the problem we have in the industry is you can't apply a one-size-fits-all solution for everyone. You mm-hmm. can't have generic investors saying, hey, I'm doing VC, I expect a digital bank and an insure tech and an agri-tech to all have the same growth trajectory. No, you, you and 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 also valuations are it's horses for courses. The way you value a digital bank and the way you value an e-commerce company and the way you value um, a retail tech like a market force are very different. And people don't, unfortunately, take the time to understand what metrics are relevant for what startup. So, you know, a question like that gets asked a lot in panels. And I, and, and, and I would strongly recommend, you know, attendees of these panels to do research on what metrics are relevant. So you can't say a blanket statement like, Oh, you need to get break even in one year. Who said that? You know, like no. Um, sorry, I'm being very blunt, but that's my personality. Um, no, no, that's so fine. No, break that's, even, that's why. Break that's why you're on the panel. Be relevant for a particular industry. So no, there is no hard and fast requirement that if you're an African startup, you have to break even in one year. Whoever mentioned that must be, you know, <laughs> off the off, off, off the charts. I don't know. Okay, so I want to I want to just move on to a second comment in the chat, um, which I think is a really interesting one. Actually, as we imagine the future of the, of the tech ecosystem in Africa, what would be a healthy mix of adopting existing tech and innovating our own homegrown tech? Right now, uh, I say that's a very interesting question because uh, even in the work we do, we see lots of companies kind of creating their own tech. And then when it comes to diligence, uh, some of the VCs say, well, actually, guys, we think this better tech exists elsewhere. You're fixing a problem, but why did you try to do this yourself? Why didn't you just buy in uh, more of what you just tried to build, right? Um, uh, Following, can you take a stab? I mean, I, I would imagine, because you obviously Google has a bunch of products right out there. Can you just take a stab at, at that, that, that issue? I was actually going to throw it to Dario. <laughs> I mean, I don't, again, I don't think there's a sweet spot um, for, I guess, a mix of adopting foreign tech and building locally. I generally come from the point of view of, I don't see the need to reinvent the wheel, right, for anything, right? If the knowledge already exists. I, I guess, following, let me, sorry, just to press you a little bit, do you see, more specifically, and this will be good for the for the founders and the, the the startups in the room. Do you see too much reinvention happening? And Zach as well. That's to you too. Do you see it too much reinvention? Foreign, maybe you can take that first. So I have a mixed response to that. So yes and no. So I see replication of of things that are, have been built in other places here, and I th- I think on one hand I can say okay that is fine because it doesn't exist and there's market to take advantage to capitalize on um, for them. So I say maybe, yes, there is a lot of replication or reinvention, yes, but also no, because it's still a bandwagon mentality. It's still solely for the same problems, right? So there's still so much room for innovation into uh, many other verticals, all the, val- the full value chain of different verticals. Um, it's always a yes and no for me. Okay, Zach, from you? Yeah, I think I think the question needs to be a bit nuanced here. So I think if you are solving a problem that is very, can you guys hear me? 
Yeah. Know, if you guys are solving a problem that's very specific to the African continent, and this is why I, I enjoy having panelists like, you know, like Follerin and Benga and Dario and, and, you know, everyone else here that understands this ecosystem. Certain industries have very unique African flavors to it. So, for example, if you look at within the payments landscape, this concept of agency banking only exists in Africa, right? You don't have it anywhere else in the world, right? Because, I mean, people here know that, you know, uh, companies like um, uh, Dot Bank in Nigeria, um, Ope, you know, they work on agents. I mean, M-Pesa was built on an agent network, right? So you can't compare that to any other comparable fintech in the US or Europe or, or, or Asia. So therefore, you have to build tech that works in that industry. So that okay. so, Zach, I'm, I'm going to jump in there because time, time is pressing. I get the point, and I think it's an important one you make, which is that we have very unique problems to solve. It's for certain things, for certain things. Like for certain things. No, I get it. One, but, but, but not for everything, right? If you're doing offline to online USSD versus mobile, that needs to be built in-house for the African content. But if you're building an e-commerce platform or if you're building a payment gateway, you don't need to create your own tech. You can use third-party software. So it's, again... Courses for courses. I'm just giving real examples versus being mm. generic. Got it. So look, we have we have like a minute and a half, and so I'm going to end with 30 seconds, and I'll pass it to Benga. Uh, I, I think one of the things we, we never we didn't get around to talent, right? And and uh, followers shared a great data point about one to one to sixty businesses in terms of ratio of developers to to businesses in Africa. Uh, one of the things we're hearing a lot about. Uh, is how big tech is in a way almost worsening that issue, uh, and migration is uh, is is causing lots of talented Africans to leave. Following you, I, 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 this is more. I'm I'm just uh, provoking the bear a little bit. You don't have time to respond to this one, uh, but it, it is evidently evidently something that the continent needs to deal with. Right? We need to keep more people on the continent, or at least working for the continent. Uh, and so, in a sense, it doesn't really matter where they are, right? That they can be in Africa, they can be elsewhere if they're working for the continent. Benga, I'll pass it to you to wrap up. And uh, I'll just say thanks to all the panelists and all the attendees. Uh, Karim, thank you. Look, uh, uh, the panel, we were meant to be talking about the pulse of tech on the continent. I think, um, you know, we, we've um, tried as hard as possible to do the deep dive but but you know in the uh, time hasn't been on our side but i think it's important that we've been able to touch on all the, the major we've been able to touch on all the major issues that you would uh, um, think about you know regulatory behavior the funding gaps uh, um, you know um, you know the skills the skills gap uh, the infrastructure gap uh, and i think um, uh, at least we've hit all of these issues and, and it's food for thought for all of us. Uh, just to wrap up, really just to talk about ALN uh, and what we bring to the table, uh, uh, the fact that uh, the ALN network across the continent uh, includes uh, firms that are spending uh, a significant amount of their time around tech, uh, and um, that's why we're having this, this session. I think it's also important to just say that we're uh, also very dedicated um, to making premium uh, legal services available to, to startups on the continent uh, and, and that we do have a, a, a 
tech agenda that that's essentially out there making sure that that we um, are constantly talking to founders constantly uh, pushing the envelope around regulatory behavior uh, and and to one last thing that um, uh, and I think it was Karim that made the point um, look um, uh, uh, it's it's clear to all of us um, that the continent still has a lot a, a way to go I'm not going to uh, around skills gap um, and I uh, wherever the Africans are that are working whether they are physically on the continent or, or living in Canada, I think it's important that we're, we're bringing all the skills uh, to play uh, in developing tech uh, on the continent. So I'm, I'm sure, ladies and gentlemen, that you will, um, and to, the, to, to everybody that's listening, um, that, um, you know, Folani, Dario, and, and Zach have um, essentially, over the last hour, uh, brought the experience to bear on the subject matter. There's still a lot to ask uh, and a lot to talk about. It's a never-ending conversation. Um, um, you know, there was a there was a, a write-up yesterday in the Nigerian newspapers about how the central bank must have been right. They told us that we shouldn't do crypto, um, um, and and in the middle of all of that is the truth. Um, what we want is regulation, as opposed to saying no, don't do it. Uh, um, and and FTX doesn't make it uh, right uh, um, um, when when there's no no regulation in the landscape. So on, on that note, uh, I would just like to say thank you very much to the audience. Thank you to the panel, uh, and and I'm sure these conversations will continue. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much, Benga. Um, it's my pleasure now to um, thank you, following Dario Zach. Much appreciated. I uh, hope you stay on uh, for the for the remaining panel. I'll pass on to uh, my partner Dominic Rubello, who actually heads our tech practice, uh, for a much deeper dive into the regulatory environment, uh, current trends and development in uh, tech and fintech on on the regulatory side. So over to all of you. Over to you, Dom. Thanks very much. Good afternoon, everybody. I hope you can all hear me. I can see for me you've got your video on. If I could ask Mandeep um, Shinner, if you guys could put your videos on if possible and, and unmute. Hi there. Uh, afternoon to you all. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. This is our, our, our second panel, our regulatory overview. I'll just give a very quick introduction to, to my three panelists. I've got Sheena, who's a director at the UK Kenya Tech Hub. 
Um, significant, significant experience in both legal financial services and impact investing um, across Europe and Africa. She's also employed with the Digital Cultural Media and Sports Department with the British government in Kenya. So a, a very diverse background there. And also a proud failed entrepreneur, which I'm sure she will tell us about um, as, we, as we get into the discussion. Secondly, I've got uh, Funmi. Funmi is one of my partners in ALN Nigeria. She, she works in their banking and finance team and a lot of experience in TMT, uh, venture financing and traditional banking and financing and tech. So she brings the, the West African uh, part of the continent across to us. And thirdly, Mandeep. Mandeep is head of business development at Input Output Global, one of the world's preeminent blockchain infrastructure research and engineering companies. A lot of experience in IT, mobile telecommunications, and obviously emerging financial technology space. And myself, I'm Dominic Rabello, partner at uh, ALN Kenya. I run our corporate team and head up our, our tech, both, both our tech practice and our tech internally at the firm. So just to, just, just to set a bit of background, earlier this year, you may have seen the, the Tony Blair Institute for Change. They put out a global paper on what's needed to supercharge Africa's startups. They identified three, three main challenges, a lack of funding, improving the business environment, and strengthening support networks. Now, lack of funding we're going to look at in quite a lot of detail on day three. Um, we've got a, a, a panel covering early stage growth and then IPO and exits with, with speakers in all of those. We're looking at improving business environment and strengthening the support networks. Both of those are, are really based on the regulator environment. You're not gonna have a strong support network unless you have a good business environment, and you're not gonna have a good business environment unless you have a strong regulatory environment. So that lack of, lack of clear regulation, overburdening companies with um, compliance, a lack of legal and fiscal certainty, and a lack of networks where information could be, um, could be shared, all inhibit African startups from scaling as fast as they really should. Ultimately, Africa is a, a high-risk environment when you compare, compare it to more developed economies. There's significant information asymmetry, lack of credit information, volatile exchange rates, and like we said, fragmented and often restricted regulation. So really, what is the, is the right level of regulation, I guess, is the big the million-dollar question. Tomorrow, we'll, we'll delve into specific sectors more deeply. We've got panels on, on fintech, health tech, insure tech, and general tech where we'll look at the regulatory environment across the continent in each of those. But for today, it's really a kind of overview of, of what is the level of tech that is correct. Um, should it be regional? Should it be uh, domestic, individual countries? Are sandboxes correct, et cetera? So maybe, maybe to start, maybe, maybe to kick it off, for, from, from all this cumbersome regulatory and the hurdles that we see across the, the continent, I don't know, Shina, you've, you've obviously been, been across the continent working in different, different jurisdictions. Is there, is there a, is there a, what, should there be a one size fits all? Should we be looking at this from a domestic perspective, individual countries, or should we be looking at it from a regional perspective? What, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, great question. And just before I answer that, can I just say, um, you know, the, the things that you mentioned in terms of access to capital are also kind of directly linked to the regulatory environment. So to give you an example, one of the projects we've done at Tech Hub was, can we get more local angel investor networks going? And so we started training angel investors, meaning high net worth, not even high net worth, professional, you know, professional people to kind of invest in local startups. And we did it in Kenya, South Africa, Nigeria and the UK. 
And weirdly, just to give an example, out of that training, one group was formed called NIBAN, which is an Arabic Business Angels Networks group. And in one year, they made 11 deals with $400,000 worth of capital leverage. Three of those startups went and raised 1.5 million. Now, we're trying to scale that. And one of the things that keeps coming up is, especially with our UK investors, is like, well, when I invest in a UK-based company, I get, you know, through SEIS and EIS regulations, you get tax reforms, you get like, you know, you get a lot of support from the government, which really stimulated the UK startup economy. So a lot of the times, regulation can actually also be that catalyst to get local capital in the market or help with the talent, etc. So again, we're running a program on talent. Um, and part of that is a lot of work with the government. Um, of Kenya directly. Um, at the moment, I'm focused on Kenya through the UK Kenya Tech Hub, but obviously I've worked previously. Similarly, with general business regulation, you touched upon that as well. So we launched a business regulatory toolkit, which basically uh, focusing on 10 counties, which is like an online calculator, which tells you, you know, how much do things cost, like, you know, what are the cost of licenses? How long does it take? Um, you know, and things like that to really help businesses when they're starting launching and scaling. So I think I like exactly what you said about the regulatory environment, but I think not, not only sometimes we just think of it as like this hindrance and can it, but it can really be um, done well, can be really, really catalytic. And I think the bit there is what focuses on your question, done well, and what does that mean? Um, and I think just to go back to your question, I think, so should it have, should we have individuals, should we have countries, should we, you know, should it be sort of more regional? I mean, ideally, wouldn't it be great for the Africa free trade continental environment where we had like one market, we had like one regulation, you know, where, where you know, and, and a regulatory framework, which would apply, how much easier would that make it for, for startups to kind of expand? The truth is, it's, it's really more complicated. And if we, you know, and if we even look at like regional blocks, like the East African block, South African, West African, um, um, and, and it's really, really complicated because context matters. So, for example, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll come back to Kenya, um, you know, in Kenya, you have, you know, you ha I think we have about 120 regulators in Kenya, um, which is for which, which is a bit insane if you really think about it. And when we've done this project where we've gone and chatted to the regulators, sometimes the regulators themselves are really, really struggling because, you know, they're, they're broke, to be, to be, you know, so, so, so sometimes they see their function as a way to kind of get revenue. And that's really not the function of what a regulator should be. A well-funded regulator is actually about um, ha having the market grow. So I think ideally would love to see kind of an Africa-wide approach and building up on global and building up on global issues, right? So for example, with, with, with pure tech matters, right? Like things like AI. Um, I think you have to have global governance standards. So, and, and, and by global, I, I'll be very clear. I don't just mean the North. I don't mean the global North. I mean the global South. And I think it's very important to have Asian, Indian, Chinese, Japanese, African voices in that AI conversation. Because when we're looking at AI and data, which I think is going to be the next, you know, we need to regulate that right. Uh, that has to, be a global, has to be a global conversation. But there's certain things which I think, so for example, the UK, the, the UK startup funding, you know, engine investing, that can be quite... Um, quite quite local. Uh, I think the earlier panel touched on all the startup builds. We've seen, you know, Nigeria, so in Africa, Ni Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya, you know, I mean, I, Nigeria's done theirs, but we're, you know, the startup bill was proposed some time ago here in Kenya as well. Um, so they said, I think my answer would be pick good bits from places and then try and create something that works and then move on to try and do a regional or a block approach because it's hard. <laughs> and I think you can have the best intentions, but you'd rather... I like the pilot approach, try something that works and then scale it rather than trying to be really, really big up front and actually just not taking off, which I think is generally what happens when we when we try to be super ambitious. Thanks, 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 Shina. Maybe, maybe 
broadening that out because East Africa, we have we have the East African community, but we don't have single regulators, et cetera. But if you look across to West Africa with Ahada and the changes there, there we have, what, 17 countries, if I remember right, um, with unified laws across across uh, various sectors, companies, company laws, um, banking and finance laws, and, and more and more move towards a sing- single regulator across the region. Now, I don't know if, if either you or Mandeep has any, any experience of West Africa and the Ahada region. And if you think that is the way to go, I mean, you've got to put that against kind of the, the global context and, and Brexit, et cetera. Um, you know, your, your European, the EU, not being as strong as it used to be. Is, is it the right way to go or should it just be left to domestic individual regulators to regulate, regulate what is a fast growing tech space? I'll let Sheena um, respond to that one because I'm I'm not too familiar with the West African regulatory environments. Yeah, sure. Um, thanks. So I think yeah. So I really like what what they have done um, in in West Africa, and I think there are some you know there are some really good good lessons. But having said that, sometimes um, so like when I speak, and this is from the startup experience, not so much from the regulatory um, the regulatory. Side, I think a lot of the people I've spoken to have said you know like and and again you know this is just direct quotes from startups. Nigeria is a nightmare. And yet, if I think about it, the Nigerian market in terms of the size, in terms of what's happening is, you know, is, is probably one of, you know, I think if you could make it in Nigeria, you, you, you know, you're, you're kind of laughing. So the question then becomes, I, again, I think in theory, yes, that would be a really, really good approach, but I think in practice, it's really difficult. So um, for right, so right now, if I think about it, most startups are, you know, in terms of where, where do we register, where do we set up, where do we grow? Rwanda comes up as one of the places for ease of doing business. But remember, it's not just about ease of doing business. It also depends on kind of market size, business environment and other factors. So I think um, so. So so I think my I think in theory, my answer is yes. Um, I think that, that is a really good approach. But I think it's really difficult in practice. And what I actually what I think would work is to do sort of what we've been trying and, and, and it's not succeeded so far is sort of the eastern block, the, the western, uh, you know, um, north and south and then trying and seeing, you know, can can we you know, can we do you know, can we actually do this in, in, in East Africa? And I think there've been attempts to try. So as part of the East Africa business community, um, the government, um, you know, they set up the whole department and I think there've been lots of conversations around it. And I think there was a round table where, um, you know, where we try to gather some of the regulators. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the, um, the IRA BIMA lab program. So that's the insurance regulatory authority here in Kenya. Um, and we worked with them as UK Kenya Tech Hub to start this kind of um, InsureTech BIMA lab, which is basically like, how do you help InsureTechs? And part of that was early stage support and then moving them to a sandbox kind of environment. And I think about two or three firms did get into it. And as phase two, um, BIMA lab has now expanded to Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda. Um, and and, and so, so basically the IRA in Kenya tried something and now they're working on sharing their learnings with the other, um, you know, with the other uh, regulators, insurance regulators, this is very limited to insurance though, in, in that space. And now they're kind of working to sort of standardize, etc. It's taken long. I'd say it's been a year and a half and we've had some good learnings, but some good challenges. I think what helped there was, um, again, IRA, strong kind of gov- regulatory government support, but also it was through FSD Africa. So again, FSD Africa has these links around the different kind of African countries. And though we limited it to East Africa, the idea, the, 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 the you know, the, the, the aim is to spread it to spread it more. I don't think I've answered it fully, um, but I think I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah, I, I don't know from if you have uh, any thoughts on, on the West African side on that um, and that regional perspective. Um, 
Yes, I do. And so, well, I mean, I agree broadly with Sheena that it's probably a good idea in theory. But no, I think in practice that there will be significant challenges because of the size of the, of the markets. So that within Africa, there are varying markets and with varying sizes, different peculiarities. So I don't think that um, having uniform laws, right, is the way to go. I mean, if I, what, what I think would probably be better is establishing standards and so saying that these are benchmarks that we, that, we, we, that, that we think each jurisdiction should, you know, focus on in terms of regulation. But I, I think that's, that's better than, you know, just like having, you know, one standard. And I, I think Sheila had made the point that theory, yes, but when, when you now get down to it, the different markets and different peculiarities could then cause um, implementation um, concerns. But just in terms of regulation, because, you know, we've talked about how um, regulation is more of a hindrance than a help. I think I just like to balance it out without holding brief for any regulator, but just to highlight the concerns. So obviously, I mean, we've all talked about how it's a, I mean, it's a, Nigeria is a, well, not, not Nigeria, Africa generally has like major issues with information and all of that. Like it's a, I mean, a lot of emerging markets and all of that, right? And if you <clears throat> don't have <clears throat> regulators, right, who can, step in and maintain stability, protect consumer um, information and funds, then, I mean, you can't just let things just run wild, right? And so I think that while we understand definitely that there are significant challenges just in terms of all the barriers that affect funding, that create a lot of uncertainty and all of that, there's still a need for balance, right? And both concerns are equally important. I think what AFTA can maybe do, like, and I know right now they're negotiating the e-commerce e protocol, is that we can really establish just standards and then best practice type, um, regula best practice type standards that we expect to see rather than firm regulation across board. Yeah, and maybe if we take this down the other way. So, so Sheena, something you said about the number of regulators in Kenya, for example, I think that's a that's a very valid point. I mean, maybe maybe we're getting it wrong by looking looking at a regional level, and maybe we should be starting in the position that jurisdictions should have a consolidated regulator. So, for example, if you look at all the East African jurisdictions, we have a we have a capital markets authority, we have a central bank, we have an insurance regulator. Um, we don't have a single financial services authority which regulates all these different industries, and maybe that's what we should be moving towards. Because when you when you look at sandboxes and sandboxes, you know they, they've been around for for a decade now, but there's only a few, a handful across the continent. And you'll find in some jurisdictions, for example, your your capital markets authority will have a sandbox, but your banking regulator, your central bank, will not. So if you're a fintech and you fall kind of in between the two, you could potentially go into the CMA sandbox. But if you fall squarely under the CBK or the central bank, then you, you're, you're stuck because you don't have a sandbox to go into. So maybe what we should be looking at is consolidating regulators with single sandboxes, regardless of what tech you're, you know, what, what novel tech you're bringing in. So, so whether you are in fintech, insurtech, et cetera, you just go into a single sandbox. Um, I don't know, do you think that's, that's, that's a, a, an approach that could work? So, so I think building on that, what I think what, what I think the biggest problem is there's too many silos. So if you're a startup, like you know, like you're in short tech, you are also still regu you know, you will fall under different regulation the regulators, you, depending on what 
um, you know, including the Data Protection Office now, et cetera. So, that, so, so, you know, you could even be covered by one regulator and you still might fall foul of the other and you might not even know it, even though you've tried, et cetera. So I think what we really, really need is a coordinated approach within the regulators. And I think that's from a cultural shift, right? Regulators are not, you know, right now, a lot of the times, and, and I do feel sorry for the regulators, right? They, they, they do, for them, licensing and this and that. It, it, it is genuinely, and I've heard this, you know, revenue collection as well, because that's that's what they need to do. But that what is the purpose of a regulator? And I think that, that, that when you start with that, what is the purpose of a regulator? And then the joint, the, because without that, a joint sandbox would not work, because we, we live in too siloed, and a part, uh, you know, too siloed a country where everybody kind of is doing their thing in little boxes, but it's actually really, really hard to collaborate everybody talks about collaboration but it's very hard because at the end of the day um you know you have your own government department that you want to you want to showcase to you want to showcase your to the media to the public etc so whether you're fighting for funding from the government or other donor partners whether you're fighting for attention whether you're fighting for whatever it is you're all competing so i think before you do a joint sandbox i think first of all you have to understand you know where, where are the win-wins what can you identify um, where different regulators can come together and where it's a win for them uh, before doing that. So I think FCA in the UK does this quite well in terms of in terms of the sandboxes. And we actually had again, uh, you know, uh, we we tried to link up some of the the people from F, you know um, from FCA to some of the regulators in Kenya and East Africa again to see what can we do together. And, and it went really well. We had a couple of really good roundtable discussions. But moving forward was very very difficult. And I think that's where you kind of need to get that buy-in from people to really understand what well, this is what I'm going to gain. And there has to be a win for everyone. And that then goes back to entrepreneurs as well. So a lot of the times, if you speak to the entrepreneurs, the, the, you know, the attitude is, I'm just going to remain underground, 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 build, 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 stop mode. I'm not really going to engage um, until I'm big enough to you know, afford an ALN lawyer or whatever, and then I'll deal with them. But actually, you know, even with startups, they need to start thinking about it as, you know, start engaging the regulator, which is quite a scary thing to do. Um, and I know at the moment, if you think about it, like what's happening with the finance, the excise act, the finance, people, um, you know, the, the 30% turnover on digital lenders. Um, so although, you know, in Kenya now, we're seeing a little bit more organizations. So you have the Digital Lenders Association of Kenya, the FinTech Association. And so they're gathering together and they're speaking to the regulators and they're inputting. But generally, startups don't do that or even businesses don't do that, right? Like the attitude here is let's remain you know, let's remain under, 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 which means both sides don't really communicate with each other. So I think we need to see a lot more, to have successful sandboxes, we need to see a lot more kind of public participation. And actually before sandboxes, sorry, I feel like I'm talking too much, but my last point, before sandboxes, um, I think what we need more of is policy labs. So for example, if you're a regulator, let's have a policy lab. So we do lots of hackathons, right? So what's a policy lab? It's kind of similar where you identify, this is my issue, and then bring different bring the startups, bring students, bring lawyers, bring people from government, bring people from counties, bring SMEs together, because then you get a broader picture. And then when you're designing the regulation, you know, you're kind of co-creating and you're understanding it because after it's reached a certain point, yes, people ask, for the, you know, you, you also get to set up in the process. So I think we need a lot more kind of that co-creation from the beginning if we're going to see more, more impact. And this space moves too far. So we really need to think through agile governance, um, and I think that's the big thing. If you know, that's the approach. If if we really want to to see um, see the more successful sandboxes. No, absolutely. And I think that that ties quite nicely back to that that point on building support networks, and there being a lack of support networks um, for for investors and and tech startups across the continent. Um, and I know, Mandeep, there's a there's an area here which you're you're really an expert in. 
because we, we have all of these different um, startups all operating in tech, but there are some common themes between them. Um, the main one being things like uh, KYC. Everybody wants to onboard their customers. Everybody is doing their own KYC on those customers. So every app I, I join on my phone, I'm being going through a KYC process again and again and again. Now, surely building some kind of support network where that KYC information is, is, is jointly put together, held in a single database, et cetera, and makes it a seamless um, integration and a seamless joining experience would help all tech startups to, to, grow, to grow quicker. I don't know, what your what your thoughts on that are. Absolutely. In fact, um, I, I'm, I'm glad you raised that point because um, earlier today and, and, and yesterday, um, I've been in, in um, discussions with uh, insurance companies, um, as well as a, a major global bank that has uh, operations in Africa. And um, they're all um, interested in um, simplifying the process. So um, I do agree with, with Sheena's comments that, you know, I think um, regulators need to work together because you know there are different uh, areas within within um in terms of what you know startups are doing and, and enterprises are doing and some of these companies that i've been speaking to they are paying um, enormous amounts for kyc because in the in the fintech world which which includes the the um, the um, in, insurance companies and micro lenders they all need to perform kyc and KYC uh, in Africa is siloed. There are different APIs that connect to different government uh, databases, and um, it's challenging um, to have to do that, uh, and, it, and it takes a really long time. If all of this was centralized um, by the governments and all the respective ministries and and, and all the data was verified and brought into um, public ledger blockchain technology, it will not only make revenues for the government, but it will bring down the cost of verification for any enterprise, be it a lender, be it an insurance company. And over and, on, over and above that, and you know, recently, and you know, I've I've lived in Kenya for many years. Recently, um, there's been regulations around the lending, you know, and and the credit scoring, for example. Can you imagine how much difference it would make if all of that data, uh, non-PII data, was all on blockchain, and a bank can onboard a customer, doing a check on blockchain for, for 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 the identities KYC with the identity providing consent. The micro lender can give a loan to that same person and spend a much lower percentage in terms of KYC fees using the same blockchain network. Um, here at um, Input Output Global, we are actually talking to governments for something that we've developed uh, which is uh, a decentralized identity platform that that in fact does this, and we have some some governments that are already uh, looking at this globally. Uh, although we have a major focus in Africa, we're already doing some work in in Ethiopia in regards to this. So bringing all of this together, 
you know, with every government in Africa would literally make a massive difference. And I don't want to, you know, say much more than that, but I'd love to be able to communicate with, uh, you know, ministers on, on this. It's a, it's, it's a game changer. Blockchain is here to stay. Absolutely. Yes, um, blockchain holds cryptocurrency, but I'm not talking anything about crypto at all. I'm talking about a decentralized ledger that can hold you know, information in, on a public ledger and can utilize smart contract technology for certain use cases. I'll stop that. So I get, yeah, I, I guess maybe the question then becomes who who would hold and run that? You know, a, a lot of a lot of African jurisdictions are only just developing their data protection laws. Um, many, many still don't have any in place. Those that do are just starting to put in place regulators, et cetera. Is that, is that, should that be a purely a purview of governments? Or is it an, an option for private companies to come in and run those kind of databases for and on behalf of governments? That's that's a great question. Um, I believe that um, if the governments uh, play a, a, a big role in it and manage, because governments ultimately hold um, or you know issue the the documentation, the you know identity documentation, etc. So today, most of the verification that's done by various fintechs and you know insurtechs, etc., um, those checks are conducted via APIs that essentially are querying government databases. So in essence, um, they would play a, a major part in doing all of the verification and, and adding the credentials onto blockchain. And then at that point, um, you and I as identities then hold and control our data. So uh, let's say I, I approach a bank to open an account. The bank wants to do um, a check on my KYC data. I then receive a, a notification uh, on my phone to say, you know, bank A has requested your, your, your verified credentials. Please, you know, please consent and share. And I go ahead and do that. So I control it. So we would, we would, we would be in this Web3 world where, uh, you know, the, the bank or the, or the lenders don't have to, you know, pay enormous amounts to do all of these queries to four or five different, uh, you know, database uh, databases out there. And you know, this this is this is very uh, common in Africa. You know, my driving license data is held by a different department to my national identity data to my tax data, etc. If all of it was centralized. Um, by every government in Africa, it's and and all of it, it you know gets put on blockchain. It will make a huge difference for everyone, and the governments can actually make revenue out of this for every check, as well. And 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 hopefully that revenue is not made out of a, a Cambridge Analytica type organization. And uh, not at all, because with blockchain, it's uh, non-PII. It's all trusted, secure. Uh, I can talk for. At, at, for hours on blockchain, and I won't do that. But uh, anyone that uh, you know, I've I've received so much interest. As I say, you know, I spend all my days talking to insurance companies and banks, and not only in Africa but globally. You know, who who are wanting these kind of uh, solutions? And it's not just about KYC. It could be anything that that has a use case. It could be uh, fraud prevention um, in the insurance space or the health health insurance, for example. It could be in the, in in the case of loyalty. 
you know, today there are major uh, telcos that have loyalty points, for example. They, uh, you know, but they're only allowing their customers to redeem against products on their side. If everything was tokenized and when you bought an airline ticket, but, you know, when you arrived, say, in the UK, you were able to use your tokens to hire a car with blockchain, we can do that. So... Excellent. I don't know, I don't know if you've got anything to add to that. Yeah, yeah, just a few things. So, yeah, I completely agree with everything um, that's been said. And I, I, sometimes when people hear blockchain, they think crypto. But actually, the best thing about blockchain, uh, blockchain is the distributed ledger, not necessarily the cryptocurrency. But obviously, cryptocurrency is sexier and gets more attention. But it's really the boring bits that's, you know, and there's so many use cases. So, um, that, you know, and I think if you look at Ghana, there's some startups already working on this, right? Like Bitland, I think they're trying to use blockchain for the land registry because, you know, land is one of the biggest issues. Kenya, West Africa, you know, just so. so Imagine if you identify who, what land something belongs to. I mean, that's that's huge. Um, Philips tried a trial in Africa, and then it got it got post. I think it, it, I think for ethical reasons, um, it, it had to be stopped. But it was really interesting in terms of the concept, um, which is they wanted to link vaccines to when a baby was born, just to make sure that the right vaccine went to the baby, because um, there's a lot of vaccines that get misplaced on, around the chain. Then, of course, there's around tracking and traceability of fruit, et cetera. So there are lots of use cases. And I think if you look at the, in Kenya, you know, the they set up the blockchain and um, the blockchain and AI task force. I think Professor Bitangademo is leading that. And if you look at that paper, and I know some of the recommendations haven't been acted upon, but I mean, that's, it's such an, it's such an interesting paper with such, you know, practical recommendation so I think we do you know we, we we kind of do have this kind of um going forward but beyond blockchain I think there's some there, they're kind of I think there's simpler things as well that we can do because I think to get to there we will get there eventually um and I always think what's low-hanging fruits what's medium and then you know what, what what's the future and I think a low-hanging fruit for example and I think on this is all our data so in Kenya we're and I'm back to Kenya but in Kenya, all our data is digitized. You know, we're not at the stage where we need to digitize our data. If you look at BRS, when you look at company records, et cetera, they're, they're all within BRS. Um, and they are open APIs, but the problem is that they are APIs where you can verify that information. And I think right now, if you want to verify something um, for a company, it's 650 shillings, right? So this individual search is 650 shillings. Now, the cost of doing, that just increases the cost of the cost of doing business. And it's just a really, again, a really archaic and a ridiculous model for the government. Imagine if they opened the APIs to private companies. Um, so, you know, you have a subscription model, so the government is still earning money. All of a sudden, that database, that data is available. Who are the companies? Who's registered? Where are the directors? So look at Company House in the UK. Um, it's really weird. I tried to find out information for Kenya Airways, um, and I have to pay 650 shillings, and I still don't get financial statements, despite it being a requirement in the Companies Act. Um, that, that, that they need to be there. And yet I could get financial statements and directors by just simply typing Kenya Airways on, um, on the, the company's house in the UK. And that information is available. So then what do they do in the UK? They have these companies like GeoDeal who then help other companies with KYC, et cetera. So it's not as, it, it doesn't cost as much. Um, so bringing down the KYC cost, yes, the blockchain would be the ideal solution, but a very simple one that can be done straight away is get BRS to have open APIs to the to the private sector. And you're right, um, data protection is, is part of this. You have to just make sure that we've got the policy, we've got the governance. But again, we are ahead here in Kenya. So, and if we did that and piloted with maybe three or four data points, see how that how that goes, and then you can scale it. All of a sudden, all that information, it's, it's already there. You know, it's not a big process of going to digitize it. D Demo made sure we digitized everything in the 90s. So, you know, we have that data. It just needs open APIs to be able to be shared with, uh, in an way to the, to the to the private sector 
Um, I, I guess, yeah, I, I guess that kind of comes back to one of the first points you made on on African regulators being profit centers. And your 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 problem is, you know, it's, it's a lot of our a lot of our governments are at the breaking point when it comes to national debt, which means they push down on all their regulators to collect as much revenue as possible, which inevitably stifles long term growth, etc. So how do you how do you how how do you those are two opposing views. How do you bring them together to say to the regulators that actually, look, that company search in Kenya that costs 650 shillings, you're still going to stimulate a lot more growth if you charge 50 shillings for it. And that's where you should be looking. How do, how do we bring those two together? So, so I think it's, not, it's even more than that, right? Like it's basically saying you're going to try and earn a different source of income. So if you start doing a subscription model where you say, all right, guys, if you're a company and you want to do 50 searches, you know, you, you pay a thousand a month or your subscription fees are 50,000 a year or whatever it is. And you, and you bucket them into, you know, what, what is what is reasonable. So obviously a bank that's doing 30, 50 searches a day should pay a bit more than like an SME who's trying to work with somebody else, et cetera. So you, you get the price point and you can do like a bucket list, but it's beyond that. It's actually more than that because you tell the regulator, you will earn more money because now what you do is you're going to have a lot more data insights and what you can then start doing is start saying i'm going to publish monthly weekly data reports on exactly the state of the smes because you have all that information most firms i mean i know the you know governments funds firms like yourselves you will pay subscription models to get this data because that's going to help you grow your business businesses will pay for that so instead of thinking extractive simple answers think how do you add value and charge premium for that service because you end up making more money and you will um but you also it'll be making money because i'm not anti-profit i think yeah people should make money but make money in a way actually adds value rather than being extractive so right now yes it's the money bit but it's also a little bit of kind of laziness in your thinking or it's also maybe not being aware of the different ways which is why i go back to policy labs um, when I spoke to a regulator, I said, you know, you can do this and you could, you know, you could, you could, people pay for this. And they were like, huh. Like it was kind of like a aha, aha moment, which is like, there's different ways of earning revenue and we shouldn't be shy about that. Um, like CES right now. I, I mean, CES is a complete nightmare in Kenya, right? Like the, the way it's been calculated, but it's nobody saying make, you know, nobody needs to pay anything, but find out different ways that you can get your revenue without hindering the economy and also stimulating some value addition because, if we had better data, how much more could our the economy grow? And this is an Africa-wide problem, you know. No, absolutely. And, and speaking of Africa-wide, I don't know for me, I know on our side of the continent, regulators are, are very hard to persuade to go down that route. I don't know in, in Nigeria, West Africa, if it's an easier proposition, an easier sell. No, I, I think it's probably the same thing um, over here, but we we are seeing change, right? I mean, I think it, it might be slow. And one of the one of the um, changes that we've seen is in relation to so this, the startup act that was signed into law just last month, so a couple of weeks ago. And what that act does, which I think is very important, to what um, Shina was talking about, is it actually establishes a council that's made up of private um, in, uh, private stakeholders and public stakeholders as well. And so it it codifies that in statutes, and then so it gives them really involvement in policy development and all of that. So we think that that's, it, it's, it's a good sign because yes, historically it's very difficult to engage with regulators and then the mindset is very, is very, I mean, we're over here, you're over there, you'll do what we say, we won't listen to you. If you don't understand it, then we'll ban it, right? But we're, we're seeing that, I, I think everyone obviously recognizes how important um, tech is. And so we're also seeing regulators now set up um, 
innovation departments and all of that. Um, CBN did that a couple of years ago. They set up a payment system, a specific payment system department. So we're seeing um, all of that. I think maybe obviously what needs to be done is those, those departments need to be staffed with people who understand tech, who have um, growth mindsets and who are not just thinking, I mean, they, they want to be far removed from the process, right? Who are willing to, you know, get down and engage and learn, who recognize how um, fast paced and changing the nature of, of, of tech is. So yes, I mean, historically there have been those issues where hoping to see change based on new developments that, that, that have um, occurred recently, but of course um, that's also down to implementation and can, can only wait and see um, how, how all that turns out. So, so there is definitely some some positivity there, um, and kind of as we as we come on to that, maybe if, if obviously from the audience, if anyone's got any questions, please do put them in the chat box, um, and we'll do our best to answer them. The you know we talked about sandboxes as being positive. The the second area which we're which we're seeing changes. There's, there's about 35 countries across the continent who are developing specific startup legislation, um, and that ranges from everything from tax incentives, financial support, and easing the costs of, of doing business. Obviously, it's a, a step in the right direction, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on whether you've seen it flow through as yet and whether it's resulted in some jurisdictions gaining a foothold, becoming easier places to, 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 to start your, your tech business and others lagging behind. Shina Mandeep, I don't, I don't know from both your perspectives if you, if you have any thoughts there. Uh, yeah. Let me let me let me start there. Um, so uh, prior to joining Input Alpha Global and and um, Coming, having come, come back to Kenya since 2017 and, and having been a co-founder of various startups, um, I, I uh, in those days, I found it um, challenging to understand, you know, what was the best way to set up, uh, you know, the structure because uh, uh, when you when you establish as a startup in one country, you you want to scale in other, you know. So you got you got Nigerian startups who want to come to you know East Africa and set up. Uh, vice versa from East Africa, they want to they want to scale. It's understanding the process. It's complicated. It's long winded. And uh, having spoken, I have lots of friends who are CEOs of of you know emerging fintechs, um, and they they have structures that are outside of Africa because it's simpler, faster, and easier to do. Right. Um, honestly, there's no I. Maybe I haven't done this, but I, I'm not able to find, you know, data out there that says, okay, you know, this is the process to register a company in Rwanda. It's the process of how you do it in Nigeria, et cetera, right? And uh, it would be great, you know, if it was all centralized, honestly, you know, to be able to participate. You literally select the 10 countries you want to you wanna scale into and you're able to establish uh, quick and fast and and follow you know and adopt all the relevant regulations etc i'll stop there and sharing my experience there and sheena please please go ahead uh, hello hi hi sheena we can hear you oh, sorry hear yeah i'm sorry yeah no i agreed i think yeah i think it, it, that that experience you know if we had that comparison that would be really really great so but mine is from from kind of a different perspective in the sense that um 
when the Sada bill in Kenya, you know, when it was proposed, et cetera, I mean, there was so much excitement, et cetera. Uh, obviously, Nigeria's done theirs, and I'm, we have a tech hub in Nigeria and, and, and South Africa. And it's funny, one of the things that we did at Kenya Nation Week last year was exactly that, to say, you know, what, what can we do, uh, you know, like, what can we learn from each other, et cetera, and, you know, what's good, and all of these things are sort of built. There's so many things that are really, really, you know, really good. But then, it, again, it, it boils down to regulation, one aspect, right? But then there's other aspects. If I'm, a, and, and as a failed startup, like, Obviously, a regulatory environment is really important, but most startups in the beginning aren't actually thinking about that, right? They've just tried, I see a problem, I see a solution, I think I can make loads of money, and I think I can scale. And generally, that's kind of the mindset of entrepreneurs. They're problem solvers. Like, they spot a problem, and they want to, and they want to, and they want to solve it. The regulatory environment conversation comes when they're, when, you know, when they're a bit bigger, and they started, or, or they've started seeing hurdles, like, oh, I have this great product, but I can't sell it because, you know, I haven't been certified, or I haven't been, or I haven't done X, Y, and Z. Um, so I think what was exciting about the startup bill, first of all, is finally, I think it's a recognition that startups are important, because I think the biggest difficulty that you'll find even right now is the definition of a startup versus an SME versus an MSME, and they're used interchangeably. And the truth is, they're both important for Africa, right? Startups are super important, um, high growth, hiring lots of people, solving, solving challenges, using technology, um, you know, for, for, for most of the time. SMEs, on the other hand, are just as important as well, right? They might be smaller, but actually they, they, they contribute to the economy. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're mass, you know, they're, they, um, they, they hire the majority of the people, et cetera. And they need both different types of support. So the startup bill is really, really good. And it covers startups um, who, who fall within that category. And, but then there's also support for the SMEs. And there's, there's a sort of bit in between where both startups and SMEs need. And that's the business environment, right? Like they need a good business. Whether you're a startup or not, you know, you need to, you know, you need to have like, you need to have clarity like one of the biggest bugbears of businesses from big businesses to corporates to small startups is we just don't know what our tax obligation is going to be in the next two to three years because there's no certainty things keep changing you know and stuff like that so there's certain key factors which i think you know um if done well could you know they, they don't just apply to startups they apply to the whole business community um certainty clarity a good legal system, court structure. And for example, in Kenya, they've done that, right? With the commercial court, they really tried. They, you know, if you look at the ease of doing business reform, some of the reforms that have come up are actually super useful. But if you speak to most businesses, they don't even know about them. So sometimes it's also a lack of awareness of what's possible because you get harassed by, you know, county officials or whatever it is, um, because that's the culture. But actually the law is pretty, is pretty good and it's pretty, it's, it's, it's pretty clear. Um, so I think, in terms of the startup bill, I think it's super. I think the startup regulation is super important, but so is size of market, right? Um, so, for example, uh, you know, so for example, why do people choose Kenya and Nigeria sometimes as those markets to kind of go into, and why do they move? Like a lot of startups you see will move from Kenya to Nigeria, and Nigeria to Kenya. They haven't, or, or you know, Nairobi to Lagos. They haven't actually conquered the whole market, but they've started moving, you know, across. Because again, look at look at the population of Africa. The majority are low income. So it depends on what your product is, is also suited for. If you're, if you're sort of a higher end product or, you know, you've got, or, or, or it requires like a monthly subscription, et cetera, you're not, you're not actually going to scale within your own country because you've actually nailed the, 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 that, that market, that market segment. And then you're going to move to a different market segment in the different African countries. So I think, um, I think the start, you know, so I, I think at the moment, Zambia has done something really good around capital and, and I think they're providing like soft loans and capital to, to kind of startups. I think Tanzania Zanzibar is trying to be this, trying to attract everyone there. And I think a couple of the startups were thinking of moving their headquarters. Kenya with like a lot of these taxes and all of this uncertainty, a lot of people, a lot of the startups I've spoken to said, oh, we're not, you know, we're going to move. 
Um, and then there's the idea of, okay, I'll have my operations here, but then I'll register in Mauritius. Actually, no, Mauritius is now kind of losing the flavor of the month. But so a lot of these other African countries want to be seen to be, I want these startups to register here. But then you also have global competition, right? Like at the moment, like obviously I'd say Delaware has been, the, you know, the, the, the country of choice for most African startups to register, but you've got London, you've got Amsterdam, um, you know, and all of these kind of different places for, for registration. I think um, I saw a really good um, article kind of comparing the different kind of startup regi regimes and kind of what was good in comparing what Kenya had proposed, South Africa had proposed, Nigeria had proposed. And actually, I think Nigeria came out pretty strong and they've gone ahead and implemented it. So really excited um, to see what, what they'll go ahead and do. But there's, but, you know, but I think, um, yeah, but I think it's really, really important. And I think it's important because, again, it's, it's, it's made startups in the agenda. It's made it, it's, you know, it's made people realize that, you know, we do need to support these startups. They are going to be the ones who solve our problems and, and generate uh, the much needed jobs. But I think it's not just regulation and the reg regulation can be a catalyst. Um, but what you'll find more is scale ups moving rather than startups not starting. Um, to a different country, you know, unless you're an expat and you have all these different options, the, the majority, uh, the reality is, the majority of startups are started by people in that country. And to be honest, that's how it should be because actually sometimes they understand the local context, they understand the local market, and yes, they should have partnerships and support from others. Uh, but I don't think it's a factor. I think it's where you're based, right? To mm. to them. Yeah, thanks, 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 Shannon. And actually, we've got a, we've got a question from the audience which is kind of related to that. Um, addressed to you for me in, in terms of how we ensure. So if we, question is, how do we guarantee enforcement of compliance if we go with standards and best practices as opposed to binding regulations? Now, obviously it's a, it's a kind of rule of law question. If, if we don't have the regulations, then, then how do we have that certainty as to what the next decision is going to be? So I think it's a, I think it's a good question. Um, and we've always spoken about the ease of doing business in index. I think it would have to be moral suasion. So we have very clear standards. This is what's, I mean, so this is the kind of, these are the kind of laws that you should have. And um, these are the kind, of in, kind of infrastructure that you should have, government participation, ETC, right? And then if you have um, indices that measure compliance among the countries, I know that in Nigeria, it was always a celebration when we moved up a couple of points on the ease of doing business index. And so that, that may be one way that we can get um, government to start competing really to, for who's, who's the best, Jurisdiction in Africa to establish and, and to uh, and to build a startup. So I think that's one of the ways that it can be done. So it, it, it is possible, and I guess it's that kind of interim step um, onto regulation. Um, and then and then leading on from that, actually, links quite up quite nicely up to a second question from the audience. Um, if we go with unified regulations, in what ways can startups and stakeholders in the tech ecosystem work with regulators to develop these regimes? Given the countries are hesitant to see their sovereignty when it comes to standardizing regulations. I think, Sheena, maybe you, you've touched on that before, and it's probably through organizations like FSD, um, Africa, et cetera, that are the best place to do that kind of work. Yeah, definitely. I think trying to do it on your own, I, I think, is really difficult, but also there needs to be incentives, right? So, for example, it could be, you know, certain, and, and, and you need to be able to incentivize the regulators so they'd be able to see what it is, and an intermediary can help that so that nobody feels like that they're losing out. So, for example, with the IRA BIMA lab in Kenya, the reason why the other countries wanted to join um, the BIMA box again was, well, the UK government, of course, we provided funding for the, for the BIMA lab and the sandbox. And it wasn't just funding, we also provided a kind of technical support, links to experts, we linked them with Lloyds um, in London, et cetera. And then, and, and as a result of that, like three of the companies moved into the sandbox. And again, why is that a win? Because insurance penetration is low and we're like this, and then the, the startups who moved into the sandbox can say, 
we're going to increase your insurance penetration. That actually meets your targets. So I think if you want to do that, you have to be very intentional and very strategic, which is what is it? What is the regulator's mission, right? Like what is what 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 are they measured upon? Like what is on their performance contract? Because their performance contracts are quite clear about what they need to achieve. Then you need to align what you need to achieve with what you're doing, and they'll jump. They'll jump at it. The problem is when we try and force what we think that regulators should be doing, especially when you start, it's not going to work. But if you're already saying, hey, you need to achieve X, Y, and Z, we can help you achieve this. They'll be more likely to join in. And then after that, you can say, you know, now you've done this. Can you try and think about this? And all of a sudden, you've shown them a success story and therefore you're able to do it. And it's still not as simple as it sounds, but I think step one is really find the wins, get their performance contracts, really understand what is it you're trying to achieve and then help them achieve it. Um, and most of those regulators would have similar, like insurance regulators will, you know, yeah, protection the market, protecting the consumer. But a lot of it is also, you know, we want to get more, um, you know, we, we want to increase insurance penetration in the country or whatever it is. So you just find that bit and, 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 mm. and do it. No, I think, you, I think you're spot on. Actually, there's an, there's an interesting comment in the chat from, from Eric, Eric Mangi, who says, my experience was local regulators have huge knowledge gaps on the tech scene, as most of traditional lawyers, et cetera. If we have startup founders, creators working for the regulator, as for example in Singapore, then we would see a significant movement on this. And I think that's a that's that's spot on. I mean, that's that's the way regulators need to be thinking. They need to be bringing in people from the ecosystem, whether whether employ them directly or or at least just listening to them to get their point of view to see how they can help build a, an ecosystem that works. And sorry, just to add to that, beyond that, you can do like policy fellowships, right? You can do secondments, you can do, do, do swapping, you can have a lawyer working in, like, you know, you can have a tech company because you can even have techies coming and shadowing a lawyer just to see how they work. So it's, 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 it's a two-way thing. And, I, and, and, I, and, I, and I, I really agree with that comment because I'm a lawyer by profession, by training and with an MBA, but I'm a tech startup failed founder. And now I work, and then I worked in impact investing. So I worked on the investing side and now I work for government. And I think one of my biggest skills is not, I'm an expert in anything, to be honest, but it's just that I now really, really understand how these different stakeholders think and communicate and able to build, bridge that communication because lawyers speak a language that techies just don't understand and regulators just don't understand and government. And it's, yeah, it's, I think this, this idea of more second secondments or like policy, like fellowships where, you know, and it's a win-win, right? Like as law firms, you guys do secondments with your clients. Now, how great would it be if you did it with, vice versa as well the tech companies can come and see how you work or government departments etc we're running a program called the digital apprenticeship program so it's called Sasa, it's going to be rebranded as Sasakazi. and really where we're, what we're doing is we're putting young techies in county governments to help them digitize for like a three-month set project um, and I think that's going to be game-changing for, for for everyone because again it helps the counties digitize but really understand the tech and it also helps the techies in the private sector ecosystem understand sometimes governments aren't being difficult on purpose. It's just that's how they're structured. Oh, that's, a, that's a very valid point, Sheena. And, and, and you're spot on on lawyers. You know, lawyers, lawyers are trained to just see the risk and it's something we have actually struggled with. Um, and one of the things we are thinking of doing, um, specifically when it comes to our VC clients and our VC investing, is that the way we, we go about due diligence is entirely wrong um, at that level. It works for a PE, it works for the big M&A, but it doesn't work for an early stage VC angel investor. Um, and we're trying to rejig our, our, our due diligence offering at that level to be much more targeted and focus on, on things like background checks, um, IP, cybersecurity risks, um, and even psychometrics on founders. 
which are, are much more pertinent and actually help an investor make a decision as to whether or not they want to go in. Whereas the traditional, you know, 100 page due diligence that lawyers generally produce is really a waste of time. Um, and I can say that being a lawyer. Um, unfortunately, we've we've come to the end of our time. I don't know if anyone's got any any last comments before we wrap up. For me, anything to add? I was just going Hi. to touch on on a tool that I think is also available to regulators, which is considering what's what is known as alternative regulation or light touch regulation. And so, rather than coming in and building the big stick, really, it's again just being more collaborative, right? Issuing um, guides, standards, and all of that, and just sensitizing the markets a bit more. And one of the reasons that, I mean, one of the things that we've seen is that there's a trust um, deficits, right, as regards how the, regula the regulated view the regulator. And even in Nigeria, even though we have currently two sandboxes, we're not quite sure what level of adoption has been. And I think that one of the reasons is one sense, just some people just don't have all the information and two, people don't trust that um, they can actually go through those sandboxes without um, having any issues. So yes, um, light touch regulation might be a way that they then begin to sort of change the perception of the regulated. Mm, I'd like to chime in uh, briefly yeah. there as well. Uh, on the light touch regulation, you know, I'm I I've been reading this, and I'm sure we we all know this. You know, everyone knows that in Africa there are all 1.2 you know billion um, underserved or uh, unbanked, right? Um, why is this still the case when the only reason you're unbanked is because you are undocumented, and regulations make it very complex um you know for you to be banked unless you are you know documented so regulations really need to work out and uh, you know strategies to simplify that you know someone um getting a bank account that has a limited amount of uh, you know account transactions that they can do because of the uh, you know lack of kyc but that builds some history, you know, and, and that customer can then grow and, and, and increase the number of transactions, et cetera, by building a history and ultimately getting the documents they require. So, you know, we should be also looking at, you know, addressing this because uh, as I say, I constantly speak to banks and other companies around, you know, the RegTech big and regulations are very tight. There's no way around it. And it should be flexible. Yeah. In my no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Sheena, any last thoughts? Um, no, I just, I think, I think agree with a lot of what my panelists said. I think though it's, um, I think it takes two. I think everyone talks about the regulators, but as startups, as entrepreneurs, as law, we also have to engage with them and try and see where they're coming from. And I think doing more of this. So I'll just do a plug. I, I also sit on the board of Kenya, which is the Kenya National Innovation Agency. And we'll be having the Kenya Innovation Week in December. And I think one of the, one of the things, one of the themes around that is also 
can we bring the re relevant regulators on board? Um, you know, the theme is global. So we're looking at, you know, global and local, you know, and, and getting different innovators. So we're getting also people from like the Indian government, like Startup India, et cetera, mm -hmm. to see if they've done better. I think we need to do a lot more knowledge exchange, like learn from each other, learn from other jurisdictions, but also talk to each other more and really understand where the other person is coming from um, before we can before we can do it. I mean, regulators, it is difficult. And I think it is difficult for them to change. But I think they realize that they have to. Um, so, you know, um, yeah. And, and, and I think it's going to be the, the cross border, so for example, and picking success stories, like, for example, cross border data flows would be data transfers. I mean, that would be amazing. And then you can move on to other things. So my approach with everything is pick something that you can do, do it well, you know, like it's the agile startup approach, right? Do it and then scale, scale, scale. I think sometimes we're limited because we want to do everything and then it just doesn't start. Um, so I think let's pick a few things that we can do, demonstrate those early wins. Um, yeah, and, and talk to each other more, really. I think that's a, a big, big thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that, that last bit on, on the sharing of information is key. And, and, and when you mentioned pick a few things, so tomorrow, tomorrow sessions, we, we've got four sessions running concurrently. Um, one on fintech, one on health tech, one on insure tech, and one on general tech. So I, I hope you can all join us for those tomorrow. Um, and yes, we'll we'll see you there. Thank you, thank you so much for your time today. Great, thanks. Bye. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.